Well, I, I wonder, were you blessed by that? Yeah. <laughs> we appreciate you so much, choir, and all the work that you've done. Uh, not just because it sounded beautiful, but you help us to worship our God who is pleased with your praise. And, and so we thank you for your ministry to us and our hearts this morning. It was a great delight for us. And it's, this, of course, is my first time here for Christmas, but I very much hope this is part of my Christmas celebration for many years to come. And so we praise the Lord for you. This morning we want to spend uh, some time in God's Word and to hear from Him. And so I direct your attention to John chapter 1 and verse 29. This is John chapter 1 and verse 29. If you're visiting with us here, you're going to find a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. I think you'll be able to uh, follow the sermon uh, a lot better if you actually open the Bible and, and have that in your lap. We're going to be referring to the text, as is our custom, a time and again. You'll find this passage on page 750. And the big numbers will be the chapter numbers, and the small numbers will be the verse numbers. And so if you would find the verse 29 there on page 750, uh, we are going to begin in that verse. John chapter 1 and verse 29. Hear now the Word of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let us pray together. Oh, dear Father, we are very thankful to be here tonight or this morning because of your great work in our lives through Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we can gather together and by your great grace that we can sing your praises and exalt you as you are exalted throughout this world and even in heaven itself. We thank you that in your great kindness to us you have seen fit to record for us your inerrant and infallible word, your revelation, the Bible, that we might set our hearts, focus on it in order that we might know you and love you, and worship you. And so we pray that you would come now and serve us in this worship service, that you would serve your people through your word, by the work of your spirit as we listen to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A great hero of mine, uh, Charles Spurgeon, happened to be the son of a pastor and even the grandson of a pastor. And so therefore, Charles Spurgeon had heard the gospel many times, but interestingly, it never penetrated his heart. That is, until one providential Sunday morning on January 6, 1850, when Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old. He wrote of this occasion in his autobiography, saying, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair, until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. 
He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, from Isaiah 45 and verse 22. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It, just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the, the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. But it is of no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Well, Spurgeon continued writing about this man's sermon, saying, Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I have ascended into heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And when he had gone to about that length, and managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he had known all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look. I saw it once, Spurgeon writes, the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, oh, what a charming word that seemed to me. Oh, I looked, and I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks to Him alone. There was a similar sermon once preached by a man thousands of years before this primitive Methodist deacon, perhaps. It's preached by John the Baptist, very similar, for we see it in verse 29, when he says, Behold, or if you will, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Christmas season, we've been considering... Uh, who Jesus is from John chapter 1. And we've been considering really what the cantata, the choir sang about, that, that this God who has come to this earth, this, this king who has stepped down from his throne, or this Lord who has left his home. And we've been trying to ask, well, okay, who then is he? I mean, well, there's a lot of ideas as to who he is, and, and we could question many people, but, but what does the Bible say about who he is? And, and, and what does he come to do? Why did he come to this earth? Why did he put on flesh and become a baby and live this life and die this death? 
And so we've been exploring these truths and, and we continue to do so today. And John the Baptist will be a great help for us today as we listen to this sermon, this word that he has. We listen to his witness. In fact, you notice the end of his message in verse 34. He says, and I have seen and I have bore witness that this is the Son of God. You see, he doesn't want people to be confused about Jesus. He wants people to understand who it is that, that Jesus is. I wonder what you will think about his message. I, I trust that you're here today and you have some idea as to who Jesus is. You have some thoughts about him. I, I wonder where you receive those thoughts. Perhaps from a mother or a father or grandparent. or Maybe from the culture. Maybe from television or the history channel. Maybe from the Bible, church. Well, it's interesting that we have an incredible opportunity this morning that a man who actually knew Jesus and, and saw Jesus and witnessed to Jesus is actually going to tell you what he thinks about Jesus. And the incredible honor that you have is to decide whether you want to believe him or not. Whether, whether to choose, is he right or is he wrong? In fact, I find it interesting where he got this information about Jesus. You know, verse 33, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John is saying, what I'm, what I'm about to tell you about Jesus, I didn't come by naturally. I didn't just figure it out. He actually has the audacity to say it was revealed to me by God himself. That God has told me what I'm about to tell you about Jesus. And we, this, this day, this 2013 call comes to an end. Some thousands of years later, we get to decide, do we believe this? I do want to let you know that I think that that decision is somewhat weighty. The Bible does tell us that what we believe about Jesus has eternal consequences. And so a lot is at stake here this morning, I think, as we consider what John has to say. I, my hope this morning is that you would perhaps uh, save your opinion about Jesus until you actually listen to this man's testimony about what he tells us about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, I think he's going to tell us two things as I study this text. He tells us that, that Jesus has given or, or is willing to give, perhaps in your case, you two things, two, two Christmas gifts I bring to you this morning. And these are gifts that you will not find under your tree, nor will you find it wrapped with a bow, or you can't even buy it on Amazon. These are gifts that, that God has given to us through Jesus. The first gift being the Father's forgiveness, and the second gift being the Holy Spirit's presence. I offer them to you today. You may have both of them if you will simply give your life to Christ. And so let's first of all consider this first gift that the, the Baptist, the prophet, tells us. That Jesus gives us the Father's forgiveness. We know, see this in verse 29 when he says, And the next day, the next day being a reference to the day after his interrogation, which we considered last week when the priests and Levites came out to ask him about what authority does he have to do this baptism and who is he. Well, the day after that, that interrogation, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there in this one sentence, John really gives us the essence of Christianity, and at the same time scandalizes pretty much everyone who heard him. This is an astonishing statement. You know, we hear it, we're not shocked, because perhaps it's so familiar to us. But for someone to say in this day to John's audience, point at a Galilean carpenter and saying, that man is the Lamb of God and he has come to remove the sin of the entire world, would have brought an avalanche of meaning to their minds. You see, Israel throughout the centuries has been programmed their consciousness has been trained to understand the idea of a sacrificial lamb. Perhaps when they heard this, some 
immediately thought of Abraham who took his son Isaac up to the hilltop to sacrifice when Isaac asked him, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? In which Abraham replied, God himself will provide the lamb. Of course he did. A ram stuck in the thickets by his horns he gave as a substitute for Abraham's only son. Others perhaps thought immediately of the Passover lamb. Every year they would sacrifice this lamb as a perpetual reminder of their sin against God and the fact that he will provide a substitute. Perhaps others considered the great and waited for promise found in Isaiah 53 of the coming Messiah that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so they've had centuries of stories and rituals of sacrifices and promises all pointing to the final and the ultimate lamb of God and John the Baptist, John the prophet stands up and says he is here and look what he has come to do. He has come to take away the sin of the world. He's come to remove sin, which friends, as we've ar- I've already suggested to you is the essence of Christianity. And I, I do want to be clear because I think there's a lot of confusion as to what Christianity is. And so we as Christians need to be firm in our mind as to what is the fundamental center of Christianity. For John the Baptist does not say, behold the Lamb of God who comes to give you peace and a purpose. Nor does he say, behold the Lamb of God who helps the sick and, he, and, and, and helps the poor. He does not say, behold the Lamb of God who protects you from trouble and comforts you in sadness. Nor does he say, behold the Lamb of God who brings commandments and demands submission. Though he does all these things. That is not the core of our faith. For he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away sin. And so Christianity fundamentally is a religion about what God has done to remove our sin. He takes it away to cast it aside. This is why he has came. This is, this is why we get so excited about Christmas. This is why we do things like cantatas and, and, and rejoice. It's not simply because we like babies. Well, we do. Or, or angel choruses, or, or shepherds, or magi. Though all these things are wonderful. We, we, we find our delight in Christmas, not even in the simple fact that God came to this world, that the king left his throne and the Lord abandoned his home, that he's Emmanuel, God with us. So we find joy in that. But our ultimate joy in Christmas is found in what God has come to do. To take our sin away. To remove it from us. Christmas is about the peace that God brings upon this earth because you and I have brought strife upon this earth because of our sin. In fact, John would later write in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And so let's be clear when he says this, that he's Lamb of God is removing sin from the world, what sin is. Because I think some people think that sin is some uh, a moral mistake or some ethical lapse. But I would like you to know that sin is much more than that. It is a rejection of God. It is a rebellion against God. In fact, I think many people are not Christians because they don't think they have done anything that actually needs God to forgive. They think, well, okay, I'm just a good person. Am I good deeds far outweigh my bad deeds and I pay my taxes and I drive around the speed limit and, and, and I love my wife and you know what, why do I need forgiveness and yet the Bible continually tells us that this is why he has come to save people from their sin you see sin sometimes is very obvious isn't it this rebellion against God sometimes it takes form in telling a lie or hurting someone or cursing God but sometimes it's very subtle 
For instance, when we make decisions or ponder dreams or even enjoy life without giving thanks or thoughts to the one who gave it to us, to the one who sustains us, is a rebellion against him. It is a declaration that I will rule my own life. Well, and I will try to live a good life, perhaps, but I will be the king of my domain. I will sit upon my throne. The Bible tells that is sin. It's a declaration of independence from the one who created you. It is a rejection of him. And you have done it, and I have done it over and over and over and over again. And because of this truth, I find great joy in echoing the words of the prophet, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My sin and your sin. Perhaps you wonder, how does a lamb take away sin? It does not do it through its wisdom or strength, does it? It does it by giving its life up. In fact, when you think about all the, the lambs that they had programmed in their consciousness, whether it be Abraham's uh, lamb or the Passover lamb or the, or the lamb that is the, the servant to come, the promised one, they all had one thing in common. They all died in place of another. And, and John is well aware of this. He's a PK. He's a, he's a priest kid. And, and he knows all about the sacrificial system. He saw firsthand what it was like. And, and their worship was not elegant and majestic as perhaps you would characterize our worship this morning. But rather it was ghastly and it was gruesome and it was bloody and smelly and stinky. It was like going to a butcher shop to worship. Which is why John's statement is so scandalous when he points at Jesus and declares that he is the Lamb of God. What he is saying is that man will die and not just any natural death but he will die like a lamb dies he will be slaughtered he will be butchered that's who he is that's what he has come to do to take away our sin that God has sent him that he might die in my place in your place that he might take the sin that you have committed upon his own shoulders. He who has never sinned said, I will take your sin. I will die for it as this great lamb. That's why he became a man. This is why we rejoice in Christmas. This is why the word put on flesh so that he could die. And die for whom, by the way? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? He comes to take away the sin of the world. Uh, his audience, or not even the Israelite sin, but, but our sin, sin from every people, tongue, tribe, and language. This is why we give crazy amounts of money to send the gospel to the dark corners, because we believe that Jesus is the only solution for those people to have their sin removed from us, from them. That's why he came to this far away land. That's why he traveled here at such expense. Years ago, Queen Elizabeth visited the United States. I don't know if you remember that. It was just a couple years ago, she came to Virginia, in fact. And the newspapers actually revealed all the behind-the-scenes details that it takes for a monarch to travel from one land to another. And the great Christian author Philip Yancey wrote about this. I found it interesting. He said, in London, looking toward the auditorium's royal box where the queen sat, I caught glimpses of the way rulers stride through the world with bodyguards, with a trumpet fanfare, and with a flourish of bright clothes and flashing jewelry. Queen Elizabeth II recently visited the United States and reporters revealed all the behind-the-scenes details and logistics for such a visit to take place. 4,000 pounds of luggage she brought. I think we're allowed 40, right, on a plane? She gets 4,000, which contain more than you ever think imaginable. 
Her luggage contained two outfits for every occasion, which kind of sounds like my wife, but anyways. uh, 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 A a mourning outfit in case someone died and she needed to attend a funeral. She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and dozens of other attendants, carefully kept within her luggage for 40 pints of plasma in case of a medical emergency. Even a brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can cost upwards of $20 million. Philip Yancey continues by saying, in contrast, the Son of God, the true royalty traveled to earth without any of the amenities of first class, landing in an animal shelter with no attendants present, nowhere to lay the king without borrowing the feed trough from the indifferent animals that shared their hay that night with their creator. Years ago, uh, when Allegra and I were married, we we had the privilege, we went to London uh, for our honeymoon, and, and there, of course, as you're visiting, um, London, one of the places you go is, is Buckingham Palace where the Queen resides. And they, I learned of a custom that when they fly the flag over the palace, that means the Queen is at home. That the Queen is in residence. The Queen is in. And that's always stuck with me. Because I always, always from that point consider Christmas to be the flag that our King has come. That our King is in residence. But here's the difference. When he came to this faraway land, he didn't take 40 pints of blood with him in case there was an emergency. He came because there was an emergency to give his own blood. He came to take away our sin. The Lamb of God has come and he takes away the sin of the world. Amen. In fact, John will go on and say in verse 30, This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. In other words, John is saying he comes after me. That is, John is older than Jesus by about six months. But he says Jesus ranks far higher than I because he was before me. That is, that Jesus has always been. As we saw in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. He was there in the beginning. And John the Baptist recognizes that Jesus has existed eternally. And therefore, he is able to fulfill this office of the Lamb of God. For what man can do that? But God himself. And so God has taken on flesh in order that he might be able to die for my sin and for your sin. That he might remove it away. That he might take it far from us. You see what he has done. As we think about this Christmas season, you understand who he is. In fact, I really think there are two religions. There's the religion of the do, and then there's the religion of the done. And it seems to me every world religion presents itself as a religion of the do, that you do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. And if you do this well enough that you might make your way to God, you might be able to get to him or enter into his heaven. It seems to me that Christianity is the only religion that says, no, we are the religion of the done. It is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. You trust in him and his work and he removes it from you. He has taken it away. He has given us great joy therefore do you not find great joy this christmas season the fact that the lamb of god has come to remove your sin from you christian do you find joy in this great work well how then should we respond how should this change you this afternoon this week at the very least i think you and i should therefore be quick to give mercy to others You do realize the great grace in which you have received from God. Should we not therefore extend grace to those who wrong us as we have wronged him, whether it be in our home or in our our neighborhood or in our workplace or in our school or even in our church? Shouldn't we be people who absorb the wrong? 
Shouldn't we be people who aggressively show the love of God in order that we might demonstrate to a watching world who God is? Because God has been so gracious and kind to us, so unbelievably merciful to us. I wonder if you're going to spend time with family this week. Perhaps family you haven't seen in a while, maybe coming out of town. I wonder, therefore, if so, will there be opportunities for you to show grace? If your family's anything like my family, you will have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity (laughs) to go and to be gracious. Not not in a resign, okay, well, Jesus has been kind to me, I guess I'll be kind to you. No, I think His grace ought to capture our heart that we would want to passionately and aggressively give mercy that we might win others to Christ. You know, the Bible tells us, according to the uh, Psalm 103, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but has cast them as far from us as the east is to the west. I therefore encourage you to celebrate Christmas with great joy and confidence and freedom and thankfulness for how you have been so fully and completely loved by God. This should uh, invade your Christmas. You are forgiven for the Lamb of God has come. Praise God for that lamb. Perhaps you don't know him. Perhaps you don't, you're here this morning. You don't know the, this lamb of God. I simply would echo the words of my older brother, John, here. This simple command he has in verse 29. You see it. Behold, look to him. Not to John or any other saint or not to your good works or your works of righteousness or your words of kindness, not to your your heritage, your family, your church attendance or your rituals or baptism. Look to Christ. Bow your knee to King Jesus. Look to the Lamb of God. He has come to save sinners. But that's not all he offers us this Christmas. As we consider quickly and secondly that Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit's presence. You know this in verse 31. John says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And so when John says, I didn't know him, he didn't say, he's not saying, I don't know who Jesus is. He was Jesus' cousin. It was most likely they spent time together growing up. What he means when he says, I didn't know him, he's saying, I didn't know that he was the Messiah. I didn't know that he was Christ, the, the promised one. That he has come. And so one reason John says, I came baptizing, so that the Messiah would be identified. And God had given John a sign, the sign as to who would be the Messiah. We see this in verse 33. He said, I myself did not know him. That's the second time he said that. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, this will be God who spoke to his prophet. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John was sent to baptize to do two things. One is to prepare people for the Messiah, and two, was to identify to the people the, who the Messiah was. And so John has this sign, He's, God says to him, when you're out baptizing, and one of the guys you baptize, you see the Holy Spirit descend upon him and remain upon him, that is the sign that he is the Messiah, which is exactly what happened, for you see in verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The other gospel accounts tell us that when Jesus came out of the water, the Spirit descended upon him. The Father spoke from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then it was then that John was able to identify Jesus as the Messiah. Now, I've already already mentioned that they were cousins and they probably spent time growing up together. And Could you imagine what that would have been like growing up 
with your cousin who happens to be God. And, and you're not even aware of it. I think about the time I spent with my cousins. I grew up with my cousins. We were all about the same age, a bunch of boys my age. And I think about the things we did together. And we rode bikes together and played sports together. And I don't know if it was the alpha male thing, but we, we wrestled a lot and, and tried to kind of dominate each other in that way. Can you imagine about age 30 and you baptize this guy and your cousin is the Messiah and you're thinking, I rode bikes with God. And God threw me the football. In fact, I body slammed God. Uh, what an extraordinary revelation. I mean, God is an incredible sense of humor putting this together as John now realizes that that boy that I grew up, cousin Jesus, is actually the Messiah who has come. For John says in verse 32, I saw the Spirit like a dove descend upon him. And what God is doing is he's giving the people a visible manifestation as to who the Messiah is because the Spirit is, is Spirit. Therefore, he's invisible. And so we w- normally wouldn't see it, the Holy Spirit descend on someone, but God in His graciousness wanted to identify Jesus as the Messiah. And so He came down in the likeness of a dove or in the form of a dove. We, we're not sure why. We, we know doves in the Old Testament represent purity, and He is, after all, the Holy Spirit. And so it is a fitting um, representation of Him. And so this is the sign that John was given. And it is a good sign. You, you might think, well, why this sign to identify the Messiah? Well, the reason that it's the sign of the Spirit of God descending and remaining on him is that the prophets of old promised that when the Messiah would come, he would be anointed. In fact, the word Messiah means anointed one. And, and the, the Greek word Christ also means anointed one. So Messiah and Christ are the same words, one in Hebrew and one in Greek. And, and when when in the Old Testament someone was set apart for some special work for God, maybe a king or a prophet or a priest, they would be anointed with oil. But the prophets would tell that the Messiah would come and he would be anointed, but not with oil, but with the, actually the Spirit of God. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 11, the Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. Or Jesus would even preach from Isaiah 61 in Nazareth saying, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to preach the gospel. And so this is why God said to John, when you see the Spirit come upon him, you know that he is the Messiah because the prophet said it would be this way. That means the days of the Messiah are here. But the incredible thing is that he tells us not only did Jesus receive the Spirit and he remained on him, but he actually, out of his great grace, is willing to give you the Spirit. He's willing to put the Spirit in our lives. In fact, you see that there in verse 33, don't you? He says, I to myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit of God descend and remain. Note this. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This was also a sign of the days of the Messiah. That when the Messiah would come, he not only would have the Spirit upon him, but the prophets would tell us that he himself will give out the Spirit to God's people in a way totally unlike they have ever experienced before. So in Joel chapter 2, the Bible tells us, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Or Isaiah 44, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Or in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so what the Bible is telling us is that when Jesus was baptized, not only do we identify him as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, but we know that he is the one who gives us the spirit. He will baptize us in the spirit. Now, throughout church history, especially in the last hundred years, this idea of baptism by the Holy Spirit is, is somewhat controversial. There's a lot of views as to when this takes place. 
And I, I'm not going to wade into that contrary this morning. But what I do want to, to, to mention is what we probably all agree on. Is that if we are in Christ, we have been immersed in the Spirit of God. Haven't we? We have, that's what baptism means. It means to, to immerse. You would baptize a ship when you would sink it, right? Uh, and it would go down. And so we all have, have been covered. We all have been uh, overflown, overwhelmed with the Spirit of God in our lives. And He becomes this powerful and profound influence in your life. I hope, dear Christian, that you know the power of the Spirit in your life. I hope you know Him and how He's working in your life. In fact, if you believe in Jesus, He's working in your life. A couple chapters after this, in John chapter 6, Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. He's not referring to physical life, but spiritual life. That the reason that you even believe in Jesus is that you've been born again by the Spirit, and He has worked up faith in your heart that you might put it in Christ. He's giving you that life. But the amazing thing is He just doesn't stop in giving that life to you. He actually enables you. Listen to this, please. He enables you to actually begin to give life to other people. That you might pour into other people's lives. In fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 7, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow uh, rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit. You see, the Spirit not only makes us alive, but the Spirit is given to us that we might begin to influence other people towards life that He flows out of us like an overflowing spring of living water. He begins to impact every part of our life. and He leads us to impact other people's life. He works a mighty work in us as He guides and convicts us, as He assures and teaches us, as He purifies and transforms us. The Spirit empowers our prayer and enlivens our worship and emboldens our witness and enables our obedience. The Spirit of God illuminates our Scripture and equips our service and unifies our church and glorifies our Lord. And when life becomes uncertain and painful, and when Christmas does not bring joy but sadness for the absence of loved ones, and when troubles abound us, it is the Spirit who reminds us, who whispers in our heart, the Lamb of God has come. And your sin has been taken away. The record of your sin has been nailed to a cross. Your slate is clean. Your impurity is washed. Your sins are forgiven. Your transgressions are forgotten. The debt is paid. And so I tell you this morning, Merry Christmas. The Lamb of God has come. And your sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Merry Christmas. The Spirit of God resides within your heart. He's here today. He's within you today. As John would declare in verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. May I echo the words of this prophet. I too have seen. I too know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. My question for you this morning as we end is, do you believe Him? Do you believe His witness? Dear friend, I I tell you that you have sinned against God, but God out of His great love for you has sent His Son to pay that penalty by dying on a cross, that He might bear the wrath of God that is due for you and for me. I tell you based upon the authority of God's word that you cannot fix your life. You cannot renew your life. You cannot clean your life. You cannot work your way into heaven. But Jesus can. 
Jesus will. He is the light who has come into the darkness. He is the freedom that has been brought to bondage. He is life that comes to death. He is forgiveness that comes to sinners. I invite you this morning to receive the gift he would offer you. Forgiveness from a holy God, the one true God. That he would forgive you and forevermore you'll be invited into his family if you will simply bow your knee to King Jesus, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. You can do that even now. Let us pray together. Dear Father, we we thank you for your great love for us. Not that we loved you, but you loved us and sent your son to die for us. And though we we rejoice in the death of Jesus, it, it at the same time brings us sorrow that we have gone astray. Each of us, as your word says, have turned to our own way. And therefore, you being holy and righteous will punish our rebellion but you being gracious and loving will punish it in Jesus. And so we thank you. This is indeed a Merry Christmas for what you have done in sending your son. Dear Lord Jesus, we love you. Will you please help us this Christmas season and forevermore to be people who are aggressive in giving grace and mercy, people who are willing to absorb wrongs, and extend love in response because of what we have received from you. And yet we pray even more that our friend here this morning, perhaps invited by a friend or family member visiting from out of town who does not yet know you, maybe they know about you, but they have not yielded their life to you. Will you even now by your spirit, out of your goodness to them, convict them that John's witness is true and that you and your love would transform their lives and overflow them with forgiveness in your presence if they will simply bow their knee to Jesus as King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.